All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will get started. I already talk way too fast, and this lecture is usually an hour long. We'll try squeezing into 30 minutes. I don't know what that's going to look like. Pray, all right, hang on tight. Uh, but let me just jump right in. In case you weren't here first session, my name is Brian Osborne. I am from Answers in Genesis, and we are all about defending biblical authority, proclaiming the gospel. That's the point behind everything we do. That's why we answer the skeptical questions of this age to defend the Bible where it's being attacked, to then proclaim the gospel effectively to a secular culture. And then we do all that in obedience to God's word in 1 Peter 3.15 to be ready to give an answer for our faith, to contend for the faith like the book of Jude says. And so that's why we need answers to questions like this one, do animals evolve? Which is our subject for this morning very, very quickly. Um, But uh, who doesn't love the crocodile, right? Or the gator duck or whatever. Um, But to... uh, but to our culture, you know, evolution is an absolute fact, and we're going to talk about how that's really not the case here in a moment, but here's a little clip showing how the idea of evolution is seen as just absolute fact. Or evolution. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, uh, you don't believe in evolution? No, nah, not really. <laughs> you don't believe in evolution? I don't know. It's just, you know... Monkeys, Darwin, you know, it's a, it's a nice story. I just think it's a little too easy. <laughs> too easy? Too... <laughs> the process of every living thing on this planet evolving over millions of years from single-celled organisms is, is too easy? Yeah, I just don't buy it. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Evolution is not for you to buy, Phoebe. Evolution is scientific fact, like, like, like the air we breathe, like gravity. So is that true? Is evolution like air or gravity? Well, it depends on what you mean by the word evolution, because the word itself has multiple meanings, and that's not weird. Most words have multiple meanings depending on context. But there's only one plausible meaning to the word evolution that's actually scientific. There's only one plausible meaning to the word that is actually observable, testable, repeatable, and falsifiable. All the other meanings to the word evolution are believed by faith. Yea, verily, even a blind faith, as we'll see here in a moment. So what we're going to do is break down all the possible meanings to the word evolution, talk about what we observe versus what's believed by faith, and when we do that, we'll see that God's word is confirmed time and time again. So buckle up, hold on, we will cover a lot in a short amount of time. The first type of evolution you, you will need for the origin of everything will be something called cosmic evolution, the origin of time, space, and matter. And according to the evolutionists, it all began with a big bang. You guys remember the big bang? The idea that around 14 billion years ago, roughly, nothing exploded and produced everything. <laughs> it's the idea. First, there was nothing, then it exploded, and then that produced everything. There you go. It's what our textbooks teach, like this one around 18 and 20 billion years ago. Nowadays, they say around 14 billion years ago, all the matter in the universe was concentrated in a very hot, dense region, maybe smaller than a period on this page. So all the matter in the universe condensed to the size of a dot. And then for some unknown reason, that thing exploded, and that's called the Big Bang. But where did the dot come from? Where did the matter come from? Discover Magazine 2002, where did it all come from? It says underneath, the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. 
So if you think about it, being deadly serious here, you have two options as far as the origin of the universe. You can either choose to believe because you weren't there. You've got to believe something, right? You can choose to believe God's word, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or you can choose to believe man's word, which says, in the beginning, nothing exploded and produced everything. You have to start with one of those two assumptions. And guys, let me say up front, that's why this is not, this is not a science versus religion issue. This is a religion versus religion issue. These are two different religious interpretations of the same present day evidence. Because as I said last session, but in case you weren't here, all scientists, whether they are secular or biblical, they got the same stuff in the present. The same galaxies, the same distant starlight, the same stars, the same DNA, the same uh, fossils. But they interpret those things differently and get different guesses about where they came from based on their different starting assumptions. If you start with the, right, the wrong assumptions, you will more than likely get the wrong conclusions. Reminds me of the story of, um, of an elderly gentleman who was sure his wife was going deaf. So one night he snuck up behind her about 10 feet away and he whispered, can you hear me, honey? Nothing. He got a few feet closer. Can you hear me, honey? Nothing. He got right behind her. Can you hear me, honey? To which she responded, for the third time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't her problem, right? <laughs> no. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions, especially when you're talking about the unseen past. And guys, secular scientists have reached some really wrong conclusions about certain things, like the age of the universe and the rock layers and dinosaurs. Why? Because they're starting with the wrong assumptions. But if you choose to elevate man's word over God's and believe in the idea of the Big Bang, you get some tough questions to answer. Questions like, where did the matter come from? And secular scientists have no good ideas. Where did the laws of nature come from, right? If matter is all that exists, then how do you explain immaterial realities like laws of logic, laws of physics, laws of gravity? And if evolution is true, then why aren't those things randomly changing over time, right? Why hasn't gravity changed? Why don't we weigh 10 pounds more than we used to? Well, you might, but it's not because gravity changed, amen? It's not gravity's fault. Again, doesn't make sense with an evolutionary worldview. And where did the energy come from to run this place? And again, secular scientists have no good ideas. Reason being is this idea that the Big Bang violates one of the most fundamental laws in science, something called the first law of thermodynamics. And if something is a law in science, here's what that basically means. It means we have never observed anything to the contrary. And one of the basic tenets of this law is that we have never seen something come from nothing. Never. And I cannot imagine a bigger violation of this law than the idea of nothing exploding and producing everything. Evolution violates many laws of science. We'll see more as we go. But here's the mantra you will hear from the secularists, from the museums, from the zoos, from the secular textbooks, from National Geographic, from Discovery Channel. They will say this. We know it violates laws of science, but somehow nature found a way. And maybe one day we'll figure out how nature did it. That's what you'll hear. That's the mantra. So after nature somehow made nothing explode, then you need the origin of stars and planets. We'll start with the stars first. Do you realize that we've never actually seen a star form? I could show you a ton of other quotes like this one from other secular scientists who say the silent embarrassment of modern astrophysics is that we don't know how a single one of these stars managed to form. Never actually seen the process take place. 
Now, the evolutionist has a guess. They say we have these big old gas and dust clouds out in space called nebula, and they do exist. And somehow these gas clouds begin to spin and collapse. And as they do so, the gas and dust run into each other, causes a lot of friction, heat builds up, fusion starts in the middle of the cloud. That's where the star is born. And then the gas and dust clump together, and that forms your planets. It's called the nebula hypothesis. And we do see beautiful gas and dust clouds out in space. That is true. They are gorgeous. And they're typically light years across. But guys, here's the thing. All we ever observe with real observational science is that these gas clouds are always, 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 guess what? Expanding, never contracting. Why? You do the math, the pressure of the gas pushing out is over a million times greater than the force of gravity trying to draw them in. The gas is extremely powerful, and there's a bad joke in there somewhere, but you get the idea, all right? <laughs> and even though we've never seen a star actually form, it's been estimated there's enough of them out there that every person on planet Earth could own 11 trillion to themselves. And God knows every single one of them by name. If you look at the creation account, and he made the stars also. That's it. We made the stars also. What an amazing thought. But to get that many stars, even in 20 billion years, you should see 6 million forming every minute. We should observe 100,000 every second. We can't see one. Now, we do see them blow up from time to time. It's called a nova or a supernova. It's a really big explosion. And on average right now, our star blows up around every 30 years. So if we've been around for billions of years, we should see millions of supernova remnants. How many do we see? 205. That's roughly around 6,000 years worth of supernova remnants. That number 6,000 sounds familiar to me. Anybody else? Just throwing it out there, something to think about. Then you need planetary evolution. We've never actually seen this happen either, but if the evolutionary guess were correct, then due to numerous laws of science, all the planets and the sun should be rotating in the same direction, and they're not. We know that Uranus, Venus, and possibly Pluto rotate backwards, and also, if the sun of our solar system and the planets are made of the same gas and the same dust, then why are they so different from each other? Different in elemental composition, atmosphere, chemical makeup, axis, rotation, so forth and so on. They're extremely different. Doesn't make sense within the evolutionary worldview. But nature found a way. Then you need organic evolution, and this is a huge problem for the evolutionists. Now you need life from non-life. Paul Davies, a really well-known expert in this field, not a creationist, says nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organize themselves into the first living cell. No even good ideas. As a matter of fact, this is such a problem that many secular scientists are buying into the idea of something called panspermia or directed panspermia. And you might be thinking, well, what is that? Well, you already know. You've probably seen a movie with this idea in there somewhere. It's the idea that aliens came and seeded life on this planet, and then it evolved from there. Which, of course, doesn't answer the ultimate question because then you ask where did the aliens come from, right? But nonetheless, I'll give you an example of this really quickly. Uh, this movie, Caught a Spell, was narrated or hosted by Ben Stein. Anybody remember Ben Stein? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller, it's old reference. All right, but some of y'all with me. Um, uh, in this, it's a good video. We don't agree with everything in the video, but overall, well done. I'm going to show you a clip from the video where he's interviewing a guy named Richard Dawkins. Do you know who Richard Dawkins is? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. He's what I like to call an atheist evangelist. All right? He feels it's his purpose in life to let you know you ultimately have no purpose in life. All right? All right? <laughs> <laughs> and guys, here's the thing. Richard Dawkins is a brilliant man. He's not dumb, but let me say this once and I'll say it again and again. This is not a head issue. 
it's a heart issue and thus becomes a worldview issue. That's a key thing to keep in mind. These guys, many of them are brilliant, but it's not a head issue, heart issue, and thus a worldview issue. Listen to what he says here about this issue of origin of life. I, I put an argument in the book. Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, then how did it get created? Well, um, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how, how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. What was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right, how did that happen? I told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. Nor, nor, nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. So why was Richard Dawkins, who's a very bright man, why is he okay with aliens creating life and not God? Here's what I suggest. Because Romans 1 says this, that the unbeliever suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. What is true about God is made obvious to them by the creation of the world around them, God's invisible attributes. Their conscience on the inside screams out that God is real. But they don't want that to be true, so they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And you see, if aliens made us, we are not morally accountable to them. But if God made us, he owns us, he sets the rules, we are accountable to him, and sinful man does not like that idea, so we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Not a head issue, it's a heart issue, and thus becomes a worldview issue. The reason he's got such a problem with this issue is because there's a law in science called the law of biogenesis, which says life only comes from, guess what? Life. That's all we've ever observed. We've never seen a rock give birth to anything. If you do, run. All right? It's not good and it is not natural. But yet evolution suggests that somehow life came from non-life. Violates this law as well. But nature found a what? Found a way. Exactly right. And then after nature somehow did that, then you need to have something some people call macroevolution. 
And this is the idea of changing one kind into another. And this is what most people really think of when you say the word evolution. It's the idea that all life shares a common ancestor from the past that diversified to all we see today over billions of years. It's the idea that some dinosaurs have evolved into birds, like very popular today amongst secular scientists. It's the idea, idea that humans and apes today share a common ape-like ancestor from the past. Many times within the ministry, we'll call it the molecules to man evolution or the microbe into the microbiologist evolution or fish to philosopher or something like that. Um, my favorite definition, though, is the one at the bottom. It's the goo to you via the zoo theory. That's what it is. You solve as goo and we get to you how through the zoo, fish, amphibians, reptiles, and mammals. If you can just remember the word farm, that's the suggested order of evolution. And this is what Darwin ultimately concluded in his book, The Origin of Species, which, by the way, Darwin made some decent observations. Nothing new. Then he reached some really bad conclusions like this one. It's a truly wonderful fact that all animals and all plants throughout all space and time should be related to each other. That's right. You are related to birds, monkeys, bananas, and even nuts. <laughs> Maybe you knew that already. I don't know. All right. Family was evidence. And by the way, this is not a new idea. It's as old as Greek mythology. It's been around for a really, really long time. It really has been. So what's all in our textbooks today. You are an animal and share a common heritage with earthworms. Were you depressed when you came in today? Did you need some encouragement? There you go, right there. And so let me just do a quick recap, just a quick overview of what the evolutionary ideology wants people to embrace by faith. It wants us to believe that around 14 billion years ago, nothing exploded and produced everything. And from the chaos of an explosion, you get the orderliness of the universe, galaxies, and solar systems. That goes against many other known laws of science if we had time to get into it. And then somehow the Earth formed around four and a half billion years ago. It was a hot molten mass, opposite what the Bible says. It was covered in water. And then it rained on the rocks for millions of years, and those rocks came alive in that organic soup roughly around 3.5 billion years ago. So that's Grandpa right there. All right. <laughs> And then they, from there, evolved into a so-called simple single-celled organism into what we see today. And eventually, we were evolved into humans. But we were a lot of things in between these two stages. Discover Magazine, 2004. Was your ancestor a sea sponge? <laughs> Inside, it declares rather dogmatically, this is your ancestor. To which I can only respond. Throw that out there, all right? If you're going to make it that easy, I can't not say that. Okay. <laughs> and then supposedly man evolves on the scene roughly around two to three million years ago. That number is in flux. But that's the general idea. That's a big picture perspective of the idea of evolution. So back to this idea of macroevolution. What are the problems with this one in particular? Well, here would be the first one I would suggest. We don't see it happening today, do we? We don't see one kind change into a whole different kind. We don't see the, the gator frog or whatever, the literal bird dog, the banana fish, the great white horse, the linearoo, or the squirrelosaurus, which would be really scary. <laughs> we don't see one kind change into a whole different kind. Now, if there was an evolutionist up here with me, he'd, he'd say, but Brian, you're being silly. Of course we don't see this happening today because evolution happens too slowly. Well, I would say, okay, if it did happen at all, there should be still some observable change we can see happening today, like from an arm to a wing, a gill to a lung or whatever. But okay, I'll give you that. Let's say it happens too slowly. 
then where should the evidence be for these immense changes over time? It should be in the earth in the fossil record, right? There should literally be billions, nay, trillions of these intermediate links in the fossil record. And guys, they're just not there. It's all the time to get to all the details of this, but give you one quote to drive this point home. Uh, Dr. Colin Patterson, a senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, the fossil expert, um, he's a staunch evolutionist, has access to one of the largest fossil collections in the world. And he wrote a book on evolution, but here was the kicker. In his book, he included no examples of transitions, not one. He's an evolutionist, has access to all these fossils. So someone noticed that. They said, why didn't you include any examples? And this was his very honest response. He said, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any fossil living, I would have certainly included them. I will lay it on the line. There's not one such fossil. Just not. There's a very honest admonition. You don't get that very often. And it's such a problem that some, some secular scientists will go to great lengths to make the evidence fit their preconceived ideas. You ever heard of Lucy? Australopithecines, Afarensis, don't be scared by that, just means southern ape. Supposedly one of the best evidences for, you know, the ape-man transition from humans evolving from apes. But here's the thing. When they found Lucy's bones, all of her bones were like that of a chimp, all of them. And so her hips were angled in such a way that, like a chimp's, that she should walk on all fours normally. She could waddle on two legs like chimps today, but normally would go on all fours. But when they found her bones and noticed that they were just like that of a chimp, they did not like that very much. They didn't want her to be a chimp because if you find a dead chimp, who cares? They wanted her to be an ape man, a transition. They wanted her to stand upright so she could be a hominid, this transition from an ape to a human as evidence for evolution. That would be a big deal. So watch what, again, a couple of guys did to make the evidence fit their preconceived ideas. And as you watch this, again, they're brilliant, but this shows the power of your starting assumptions, the power of your worldview. The ape that stood up, it was a revolutionary idea. We needed Owen Lovejoy's expertise again, because the evidence wasn't quite adding up. The knee looked human, but the shape of her hip didn't. Superficially, her hip resembled a chimpanzee's, which meant that Lucy couldn't possibly have walked like a modern human. But Lovejoy noticed something odd about the way the bones had been fossilized. When I put the two parts of the pelvis together that we had, this part of the pelvis has pressed so hard and so completely into this one that it caused it to be broken into a series of individual pieces which were then fused together in later fossilization. After Lucy died, some of her bones lying in the mud must have been crushed or broken, perhaps by animals browsing at the lakeshore. Uh, this has caused the two bones, in fact, to fit together so well that they're in an anatomically impossible position. They fit together too well? They fit together so well, it's anatomically impossible. Why? It does not fit his preconceived ideas. It does not fit his worldview. Watch what happens next. The perfect fit was an illusion that made Lucy's hip bones seem to flare out like a chimp's. But all was not lost. (laughs) 
Lovejoy decided he could restore the pelvis to its natural shape. He didn't want to tamper with the original, so he made a copy in plaster. He cut the damaged pieces out and put them back together the way they were before Lucy died. It was a tricky job, but after taking the kink out of the pelvis, it all fit together perfectly, like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. Not surprised. <laughs> All right? He just he ground that thing down to make it look like whatever he wants it to look like. And here's the thing. I'm not trying to pick on them. They are brilliant guys. They're very, very smart. IQ is probably off the chart. But it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. And I would even say this. They're being consistent with their worldview. They are. They started with the idea that man's word is true, evolution is true. We know we evolved from ape-like ancestors, so somehow this evidence has to say that. And trying to figure out how to make it fit that paradigm. The problem is this, they're standing on the wrong foundation. They need to stand on God's word and not man's word. Your conclusions are only as good as your starting assumptions. That's the bottom line. It really is. And by the way, also when we're talking about fossils, bear in mind that arranging animals or fossils in order on paper does not prove a relationship. Even if you find them buried in a particular order, it doesn't prove a relationship. If later on you guys find me buried on top of a hamster, it doesn't mean he's my grandpa. All right? <laughs> Just throwing that out there, all right? And so what do we actually find in the fossil record? Well, here's what we find. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers that were laid down by water all over the earth. Hey, since there was a global flood, what do we expect to find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers that were laid down by water all over the earth. Tremendous confirmation of the Bible's veracity and historicity right there in that rock layers right in front of us. Day in and day out, we see them. So we could go on. But summary evidence for this idea of macroevolution, we don't see it in the present. We don't see it in the fossil record. And there's not an observable mechanism in the present to make it even plausible. We'll get to that one here in a moment. But notice... These first four meanings of the word evolution are believed by faith. None of them have ever been observed. Actually, I'd say they're believed by a blind faith because they're believed in spite of all the laws of science they break. That leads us to the last possible definition to the word. This last definition I do not like. I think it's confusing at best, deceptive at worst. But it's what some people call nowadays microevolution. And we simply call this change. Adaptation, variation, speciation, that's the idea that some people call microevolution. It's the idea that certain types of animals will have variations within the kind, actually all of them will. For example, it's the idea that lizards will produce other variations of, guess what? Lizards. Different sizes, colors, distinct traits, but they're always still lizards. And would you believe, oh my goodness, this is exactly what the Bible has taught from the very beginning. Genesis 1, 10 times, the Bible says, God made distinct types of plants and animals to reproduce according to their kind. And the word kind, for the most part, is equal to about the family level of modern day classification. So according to the Bible, God made the dog kind, and within the dog kind, we get variations of guess what? Dogs. Dogs take dogs. Elephants produce what? Elephants. Cats make what? Unfortunately. Right? So you get the idea. <laughs> All right. Sorry. <laughs> no. So, whether you're talking about my big dog here, Samson, who's a great day, or little dogs like the Chihuahua, they're both, they're both still dogs, I think. Not real positive about the Chihuahua, but anyway, there you go. 
uh, or something like uh, horses. You make tons of variations of horses. You make zorses and z-donks. Here's a zebra with no PJs. Here's a, here's a real horse that is really confused. Look at that thing. Here's a z-donk we have at the Creation Museum. There's a zorse we have at the Creation Museum. You can make lepons if you would like. You can make ligers if you would like because they're lions and leopards and lions and tigers are the same kind of animal. That is a beautiful liger taken by National Geographic. You see, variations happen. No one argues that, but variations do have limits, right? I mean, farmers are trying to breed bigger pigs for a long time. Will they ever get a pig as big as Texas? No, that might happen maybe when this happens, right? Right here. There are limits. Roaches do become resistant to pesticides. This is true through a loss of information. Will they ever become resistant to a sledgehammer? Man, I hope not, all right? It's going to be a really bad day. So very quickly in the last few minutes we have, what causes these variations in our world today? Two main things, natural selection and mutations. And guys, no informed, rational person argues that things don't change. Of course they change. The questions are, how much do they change and which direction is that change going? Is it an onward upward progression, changing a molecule into a man, or maybe a mixing and loss of genetic information over time? And here's the key. In order for natural selection and mutations to lead to the idea of macroevolution, to change a molecule into a man, here's what they must, must do. They must add brand new genetic information over time. They must. Because one quick example, if you're going to change a dinosaur into a bird, you need new information, don't you? New information for new eyes, new lungs, new heart, new nervous system, new bone structure, new feathers, new instincts, new everything. And that requires brand new genetic information to accumulate over time. If these things don't do that, it makes macroevolution biologically and genetically impossible. So very quickly, natural selection, we know what that is, survival of the fittest. The ability of organisms to adapt because of the amazing amount of genetic variation God has put inside of them. Don't have time to talk about that today. We're running out of time. We're going to run through this. But here's the bottom line about natural selection. Even most evolutions today would agree. Can natural selection lead to the idea of macroevolution? And the answer is no. And here's why. Natural selection just works on what's already there. It does not add any new genetic information. For example, let's say you got two dogs who get off Noah's Ark, and they get married to kids, and their kids get married to kids, and their kids get married to kids, and you end up with a whole bunch of dogs, right? Population spreads out, different combinations of genes will do better in different environments. But let's say the, the first parents for this population had genetic information for S, short hair, and L, long hair. It's more complicated than this, but the principles hold true. These parents could have many variations, right? They could pass on both short hair genes and make dogs with short hair, pass on a short hair gene, and long hair gene and make dogs with medium length hair, or pass on both long hair genes and create hairy. Everybody with me? Pretty straightforward, right? So let's say a segment of this population goes up north with these different variations where it is cold. Well, in that environment, the dogs with short hair and medium length hair, they'll get cold, freeze, and then they will die. <laughs> if that makes you sad, they can move away. All right, just whatever, whatever you want to go with, I'm fine with. The point is, after a while, in that environment, all you have is dog with long hair, and which on their own only produce dogs with long hair. That is natural selection in action. Now notice, in that process, did you add or lose genetic information? You lost it, right? You lost information for short hair. And you could flip the script and say dogs that went to where it's hot, they have the opposite problem. 
In that environment, the dogs with long hair and meaningless hair, they would overheat and die. And after a while, I have in that environment our dogs with short hair. Again, that's a loss of information. And so through that process, we get tons of variations of dogs. They were dogs. They are dogs. That's not Darwinian evolution. That's simply, guess what? Dogs being dogs. Very, very simple. And then the secularists will say, but yes, but there is something out there that does add the new information we need to change a molecule into a man. And they will say that thing is mutations. Like this textbook says, they're the source of new information that makes macroevolution plausible. Okay, so what are they? They must be pretty incredible. Well, a classical definition of a mutation is this. It's when genetic information is damaged or changed. They're random, they're rare, mostly harmful. Very often they are lethal. As this secular scientist says, the great majority of mutations, well over 99%, are harmful in some way as to be expected from accidental occurrences. Mutations are accidents within your genome. They're typos in your DNA. Quick life question. When you have an accident, does that make things better or worse? Worse. And it's really bad when you talk about something as complicated as your DNA. Mutations are very, very bad. As this secular scientist says, mutations, no matter how numerous they may be, do not produce any kind of macro evolution. And here's why. Because they rearrange or delete existing genetic information, they do not add it. That's why. Think about it like this. You could take the word Christmas, delete some of the letters, mix the other ones around, and make all sorts of other cool words, has, Matt, Sam, Ram, and so forth, but you will never get the words Xerox, Zebra, or Queen. The letters are not available. A few examples of these. Here's a five-legged bull. No new information, just a repeat of what he already had and detrimental to his health. Here's a short-legged sheep. That's a loss of information, right? And this guy, he's the first one that's going to get eaten by a wolf because he can't run but so fast with these little legs. All right, just throwing it out there. Here's a two-headed turtle. It's a mutant. As this secular scientist says, it's kind of weird mutant. But anyway, not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information. Indeed, they all destroy information. None can serve as an example of macro evolution. And we could go on with the example. So people say, what about bacteria become resistant to antibiotics? that still throw a loss of information if we had time. But I'm running out. So I'm going to fast forward through this particular example. But here's a point. With natural selection and mutations, guys, all we ever, ever, ever observe with real science, if I can get through this, are new combinations of already existing genetic information with less variability than they started with, and that's the opposite, the opposite of what you need for the idea of macro evolution. But then here's what you hear after that. Okay, but wait, but just give it enough time. And all those small changes add up to big changes. But guys, notice... These small changes, are they adding or typically losing genetic information over time? They're subtracting. So no matter how much time you give it, they're subtracting, not adding. Won't go in the right direction. They're going downward, not upward. So no matter how much time you give it, it does not work. I love this secular response to that idea. Who says, whoever thinks macroevolution can be made by mutations that lose information is like the merchant who lost a little money on every sale but thought he could make it up with volume. There is a political joke in there somewhere, all right? <laughs> but um, anyway. <laughs> so do animals evolve? Well, define your terms. Very key thing to do as we talk about this issue. What do you mean by evolution? If by evolution you mean what some people call microevolution, we don't like that, but okay, if you, that's what you mean, variations within the kind, adaptation, speciation. Yes, that's a fact. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we observe 
no problem. But if by evolution you mean like the idea of macroevolution or nothing exploding and producing everything or that sort of stuff, no, we don't believe that because that's never been observed. The Bible doesn't teach it. And that's believed by faith in spite of the facts, in spite of the laws of science. And micro does not lead to macro because they're going in opposite directions. But here's the thing. I want to show you this very quickly as we wrap up here in the last two minutes. Um, what you'll see over and over again in our culture, in the museums, in the zoos, in the public school textbooks, is they'll say this. We know evolution is true. And the first time they say the word evolution, they're applying macroevolution, the whole theory, molecules to man. It's all, the whole thing must be true. Well, how do you know? Well, because we see evolution happening all the time. And they'll only give you examples of, guess what? Variations. Dogs making dogs. Cats, cats. Finches, finches. Bacteria, bacteria. That proves we came from a rock billions of years ago. Nothing exploded 14 billion years ago. It's a false equation. This is logical fallacy of equivocation. These two things do not go in the same direction. Now, I'll give you just one or actually two quick clips to sum up the idea. Ray Comfort was asked going to college campuses and asking professors and science students for evidence of macroevolution, Darwinian evolution. And all they give them answers or responses for, so the evidence for macroevolution is variation within a kind. Watch what happens. When you say change of kinds, you mean the evolution of one species from another or to another. Yes, we have that in action actually in the Galapagos. Could you uh, give me one instance? Yes. We have an example from a group of birds called Darwin's finches. And you take a look at the difference between the finches on the islands that all started out. I mean, that's very, very observed. But that's not Darwinian evolution. There's been no change of kinds. What do the finches become? They become genetically new and anatomically new, recognizably different species. So they're still finches? Well, of course, they're still finches. Yeah, they're not a change. Of, there's no change of kind. Little birds that he uh, that he had observed. That oh, what did they become? Um, their beaks, their beak shapes. They're their still colors. birds. Yes, three finches that turned into different types of birds. Based they're on still the finches. Well, for example, Darwin and and his study on evolution of the birds on the island that he went on to there. Their beaks changed. Their beaks. Uh, they're still birds. There's no change of kinds. That's within no, no, no. the kind. It's evolution on the beaks. That's so that's called adaptation. It's not Darwinian evolution. There's no change of kinds. There's no different animal involved. I want something that shows me Darwin's belief in a change of kinds is scientific. All right. One last quick clip. I'm going to run one minute over. I'm sorry, but this professor will convince you about evolution with a stickleback fish. Watch this last thing. The scientific method is, must be observable and repeatable. So could you give me one piece of observable evidence for Darwinian evolution? Okay, I would point to, as one great example is, look at the genetics of the stickleback. What's that? Uh, so stickleback fish are a very interesting collection of species that were recently isolated after the end of the Ice Age. What did they become? They're, they're various species of sticklebacks. They stayed as fish? Well, of course. One last time, it's not a head issue, it is a heart issue and thus becomes a worldview issue. And guys, when we stand on the authority of God's word, we can answer the skeptical questions of this age. We see that God's word is confirmed time and again, and then we can do the most important thing of all. We can share the gospel boldly to a lost and dying world. I like to put it like this. We give all these answers to get to the answer, Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. In our day and age, so many people today, they don't believe the gospel. Why? Because they don't believe the book from which the gospel comes. So we answer their questions, defend the faith, and proclaim the gospel. Amen?
Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we made it almost in time. Praise you for a chance to gather together with believers and talk about the truthfulness of your word. May we be equipped to honor you by giving these answers to share the gospel effectively that you might work through us to draw a lost and dying world to yourself. God, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.